Welcome to Work It on CNA 938. Now, some weeks ago, we discussed imposter syndrome on our show and we hope you're not feeling like you are an imposter at your job. In fact, uh, today on our show, we want you to feel like you have it in the bag, that you've got this. Now, today, we give attention to what career confidence is and how you can build it. That's right. That's something you might also grapple with as you mull over taking on greater responsibilities at the workplace, which may include moving into a managerial role. Uh, you might have some self-doubt about your abilities, but let's hear now how you can replace fear with confidence with Professor Scott Taylor, who is Professor of Organizational Behavior at Babson College, and he's speaking to us all the way from the United States. Hi, Professor Scott. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you, Stanley. Thank you, Cheryl. Great to be with you both. Yeah, so we know that you're an expert in leadership development. So what are the indications that a worker is ready to take that next big step to become a manager and a leader? What are the coming of age signs, so to speak? Well, I think one key one is just the desire to want to have a broader impact and influence. And I think when you talk about leadership, and versus management, I think they're two different things. They certainly overlap and have a lot of congruence, but John Cotter, an early Harvard professor of business and leadership, wrote a wonderful book. It's now a classic called A Force for Change, where he distinguishes between the two, claiming that leadership is more relational in nature and management is more about aligning, organizing, operations, et cetera. And so, with either role, a leadership role where it's really about influencing people, that could be something that's independent of a specific role. We can do that at any time in any position or opportunity where we find ourselves. A management role would really be about, do I feel like I'm technically ready to take on those responsibilities of planning, organizing, budgeting, aligning with policies, practices, and procedures? But with a leadership role, it's am I ready to feel like I want to have an influence on other people and create a climate where they can be their best? Would it be true to say then that all leaders are managers, but not all managers are leaders? Yeah, I think so. I think you can have people that are very effective at organizing and aligning and creating compliance, but may not be able to do that in a way that inspires and, and enables people to be their best and do their best. On the other hand, those that are more effective at aligning, enabling people, excuse me, enabling people, inspiring people, can easily often adopt some of those more managerial skills. I think one is much more easily practiced in terms of management. It's how do I influence diverse people with different needs? That's a little trickier. Yeah, people can be challenging. Uh, they can be even more challenging than, say, learning how to do Gen AI and <laughs> technology. That's exactly right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. It can be daunting going from, say, one who has been just self-led, self-driven, working, uh, you know, independently to then having others to, to, to be leading and inspiring and motivating. So what are some common fears you think, Professor uh, Taylor, associated with going down that leadership route? Yeah, the quickest ones, especially when taking on a leadership role, is will I be able to have the influence that I hope to have? Will people respect me, give me, if you will, deference to, to the responsibilities I carry? Often when moving into a managerial role, which involves leadership, you often are becoming now the boss or supervisor of your peers. And so there's this awkwardness of moving now into a role where before you were peers and 
at the same level, if you will, but often you move up in a management role, you're, you're now becoming the boss of those peers, which can create a sense of awkwardness. And now that I have a responsibility to supervise you, give you performance feedback, et cetera. So those are some of the initial ones that come up. Mm. But I guess it would be somewhat different if you were, say, moving up from within the organization rather than someone who is parachuted in from outside. Actually, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I beg to differ because we're in a newsroom. So sometimes you see like reporters become editors and then they suddenly have to vet the work of their peers. And that is, like you said, is inevitably so awkward. And it, sometimes they'll be like... Um, who are you to vet my work, right? But the fact is, they have got promoted and they are they have moved up. So, I, I get what you mean. I think it's it's quite a real situation that we, we can see. Yeah, and when you it. fly, <laughs> yeah, so true. And as Stanley like as Stanley said, when you fly in, the challenge there is that you're not accustomed to the culture, the environment, mm. the way things get done in that organization. You may assume, well, it's like where I was before, and that could be an erroneous assumption that leads into some challenges. Yeah. Okay, so you really have to put that dipstick in if you're going to be new to the organization. What's the culture like? How do people work here? What do they think of each other? Things like that. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's why we often recommend don't walk in and make changes right away. Mm. Get a sense, build relationships, understand how things get done mm. before you just jump in and start changing yeah. things. But I think the thing is with new leaders, a lot of them are very eager to make their mark straight away, right? To create some form of impact. And the greatest way to do that would be, like you said, uh, to create some form of change, right? They want to change um, something to show that I'm doing something here. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it's, it's just change for the sake of change. So um, how, how, how do you advise them to hold back on this first? Yeah, focus, uh, because ultimately what you want is a coordinated effort that becomes collaborative in nature. Any leader is trying to inspire and influence a common direction toward a shared goal, if you will. And that's directly connected to the nature of the relationships. So if we don't make that first human capital investment, if you will, if we don't take the time to build some trust, and it doesn't take long, but the simply showing an act or an effort to do that can build that sense of safety, sense, sense of inclusion, that sense of trust, which is so fundamental to leadership. Ultimately, for me, leadership is about the nature of the relationships. Mm. Um, if there's no relationship, there's not going to be sustainable and influential leadership. Yeah. And so building those relationships is fundamental. Yeah. Uh, Professor Scott, should leadership roles uh, and duties be something that our bosses thrust onto us because they decide that we are ready? Or should it be something that we ask for when we think that we're ready? Because I think the, 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 the framework or the mindset is very different in these two situations. Is there a better approach, or one or the other? Yeah, it's a great question because there are a lot of organizations that take one or approach or the other. They wait for you to advocate. There are other organizations that say they tap you on the shoulder and say, it's time. I actually believe the better way to approach this is that it be a dialogue where there's input from both perspectives. I feel ready for this. We see you coming for this. We want to prepare you for that. And that starts with having really intentional discussions about what are the aspirations of the individual. And what are the things they need to develop so that they feel a little bit more prepared and the organization is also giving them the opportunity to be challenged. So when you have those open discussions, the sense of timing, I think, is better. The reality is for the best leaders that I've worked with over the years, there's always a sense of inadequacy. I don't think that ever goes away with truly effective leaders. 
especially leaders who are able to maintain their effectiveness over time. And that sense of adequacy is not a lack of self-esteem or self-worth. It's really learning or a learning orientation where I have more to learn. I have more to discover. And so they never feel like they have it truly figured out. And so that sense of inadequacy and should I jump in may not ever really completely go away with the most effective leaders. I get a little nervous when people feel like they've got it all figured out. It's yeah. a bit like parenthood, right? You're never ready. Uh-uh. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly There's no guidebook, right. no guidebook about being a parent. Um, there are some common qualities we all are familiar with that that are you know brandished when we talk about leaders, good qualities in leaders, whether they be a visionary or maybe they are courageous or maybe they've got lots of integrity or they are resilient and resourceful. Let's talk about some perhaps underrated qualities, Professor, that you deem are just as, if not even more important than those that we've mentioned? I'd be happy to do so. What's interesting is it's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's also based on science and research. My colleagues and I, there's a small group of us, we've been asking a question all over the world, including in Singapore and many other countries. We've hit all seven continents for the last 22 years. And we've asked individuals to think of someone they believe who is an outstanding leader. And then we ask them to write down words, characteristics, or phrases that identify that uh, individual, very specific concrete phrases describe that outstanding leader. And it must be someone they know, someone they worked with. It can't be somebody that lived 300 years ago. And what's remarkable about this research that we've done now, again, I said for 22 years, is the answers we get are identical everywhere. Whether with high school students or board of directors, it doesn't matter, you know, the industry, the education, the country, the language, any factor of diversity becomes quickly irrelevant. Not that they're not important, they are, but with this question, what identifies an outstanding leader, all those factors of diversity melt away. And so what we believe we've captured is part of the human condition. And when you look at those descriptions, what you find are two sub are two overriding factors. Number one, outstanding leaders create a connection with the other. They create a connection. And number two, they create an overall positive environment. What doesn't show up is that they were the smartest person. They were the most technical expertise. Those are actually more common to effective managers. It's not that they aren't important. If you're a financial analyst and you can't do some finance, that's going to be a problem. You're not going to keep your job. But assuming a level of capability and technical expertise, what differentiates average from outstanding is not cognitive capability or technically related. It's relationally related. Hmm. And so in answer to your question, helping people learn how to pay attention to the emotional climate. Emotions absolutely matter to leadership. Emotions are contagious and positive emotion we've learned over the last 15 to 20 years have a significant impact on human performance, more than we ever dreamed of or thought of before. And second, this notion of being outward focused and connecting with other people. To do that, you've got to be inwardly clear and self-aware, understand yourself, your strengths, your weaknesses, et cetera. But those are the two things that I would say we need to do a much better job diving into and helping people become more effective leaders. All right, creating that connection and creating a positive environment to underrated qualities of leaders. Um, Scott, can you give us then some real life examples uh, of people who are currently, you know, I don't know, maybe they could be semi-famous or who you consider could be effective and successful corporate leaders um, at, who are alive right now? 
Yeah, I would say that, first of all, I'm interested in the, those that are able to sustainably maintain a high performance and grow leadership. So there are people that can have heavy impact, short periods of time and not have those two qualities I just mentioned. Um, that's different. And, and again, you gave the example earlier of a parent. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in parents that are able to grow and develop children that can perpetuate those two characteristics. And so sustainably leading performance. So there are a few, or, and I, I hate to just call out names unless I've worked with them and know them well, but one of them in the US, for example, running the CEO and chairman of the Smucker Company, which is Jams and Jellies, Folgers Coffee, um, Mark Smucker, he's a fifth generation family led publicly traded organization, about 12 billion in size, but just an amazing individual at connecting with people at whether they be large groups in his presence with them or whether it be one-on-one -on -one. and the overall climate and environment they create is one example that I would give. And there are many others like that, that uh, in, in other settings that are not corporations, for example, that have an incredible ability to do that. But that's just one example I'd throw out. Mm. All right. Um, well, time is of the essence, although we know that uh, leaders need to, you know, make time to, to cultivate relations and trust with the teams that you may have to work very closely with and inspire and enthuse. But what should be in the toolkit um, to groom and develop leadership talent in organizations? How can they provide um, the, the necessary uh, know-how and expertise for them to groom leaders of tomorrow for their organizations? Yeah, it, to help create that overall positive climate and that connection with others, there are very specific behaviors that help us to do that. And we refer to them as emotional and social competencies, things like empathy, influence, um, self-control, self-awareness, teamwork. Some of these are known, others are less known, but these emotional and social competencies are ways in which leaders can do that. The other thing I would say is that ultimately what a great leader is able to do is initiate intrinsic motivation, enable intrinsic motivation, which is the most powerful form of human motivation. It's the self-driven motivation. And to do that, a leader has to, to feed what I call feed the needs. There are three innate needs that drive intrinsic motivation. One is, do I feel a sense of autonomy, the ability to act for myself rather than feel like I'm being acted upon? Another is, do I feel like the relationships around me are ones of meaningfulness? And two, do I feel confident and capable? So I like to say, by virtue of your leadership, are you helping people feel more autonomous, stronger in their relationships with each other and you, and do they feel more confident? And so helping leaders feed those three needs is going to unleash human potential in a, an extraordinary way. All right, uh, Prof. Scott, uh, before we let you go, we got to ask you about the current uh, world because it's fraught with geopolitical and economic tension. So what would you tout as emerging skills that leaders will increasingly need to navigate the teams and businesses, especially in the present uh, climate, which is so chaotic? Yeah, I would say really quickly two or three things. One is uh, we've got to avoid some of the common pitfalls, and one of them is self-deception, leader self-deception. And I'm very concerned about this. I think it's growing rapidly in all sectors and sites, and it's as easy as this. The minute I start to see you as a vehicle, as an object, as a means to an end, I've moved into self-deception because you're not any of those things. 
And that's one trap. And then the other thing I would say is we need leaders that can move more quickly and efficiently between cognitive states of empathetic cognition and analytical cognition. And what I mean by that is the ability to both relate and connect with people, be self-aware, be ethical in your reasoning, but also at the same time, be able to solve problems. And these two cognitive states are actually antagonistic. When one is activated, the other is suppressed. And, we, and they're like magnetic poles. So we believe that leaders that are really effective and able to solve and help others solve complex problems can move back and forth efficiently, and we can develop that capability. And that's needed more than ever in this environment in which we're in. Wow, so much gems uh, you have been able to share with us in this last 15 minutes or so that we've uh, had, Professor. Thank you so much. You made me want to sign up for your classes at Babson College, uh, but it's quite a long way off. Uh, and you're too old for that. Oh, no, hey, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you're never too old. You're never too old. All right. Lifelong right. learning. That's what they call it. <laughs> professor Scott Taylor has been chatting with us on WorkIt. He is Professor of Organizational Behavior at Babson College, making time to speak with us all the way from the US today on Work It. Thank you, Professor Taylor, for being our guest on CNA 938. You bet. It's been a joy. Thank you both. Thank you.